Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Sosa-Sanderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insight. And each week we bring you The Polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So it's been a little bit of a week for me. My grandmother passed away, Enid Reese Friedlander. Um, and so I was out the last couple days, but I'm caught up now. I feel like I'm caught up now. Um, but she was not a podcast listener. She was not a pollster connoisseur, but she lived her life. She had a long life filled with beauty. She escaped the Holocaust and then went on to become Miss Brooklyn and Miss Subways. At least I haven't really fact-checked that, but I'm pretty sure that's it's mostly true. <laughs> I feel like the photos that you posted on Facebook are strong evidence for the truth of those claims because <laughs> – she was such a stylish lady. Oh, I my mean, goodness. It's not. I mean, she is so Flor- like she's all Florida, you know, um, which I'm sure you can appreciate. I mean, she was I mean, she was in New York, obviously, for a long time. And before that, she was in Europe. But she really Florida was part was definitely her spiritual home. And the like the amount I mean, the clothes it, 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 she was just so stylish. She was just really, it was an incredible thing to watch. I mean, even toward the end of her life, the doctors were always amazed that she would show up in like a cowboy hat and like a sparkly belt. <laughs> like she, would, I remember she gave me this outfit, like, and, and, and this was a while, a while ago. I'm like, what am I going to do with this blue suede, you know, matching outfit with like beaded fringe. Like, where am I going with this outfit? <laughs> and I gave it to somebody who was like a foot shorter than me. And she's like, I- I'm, where am I going to go with this outfit? And then she gave it to somebody else who was like, I think I'm going to wear this to carnival. Like she was like, you know, like, you know, in this parade of carnival, like that's where it ended up. So this was like, that was the amount of style that my grandmother had. So um, anyway, so that's where I was the last couple of weeks or last couple of days rather. But we, I am back. Um, I am back. And, and there are some new polls. What are the yes. top lines? Top lines are we are now post debate round two. We'll take a look and see if anything has changed in the Democratic primary horse race. We'll also take a look at the state of polling on gun laws and the partisan breakdowns that might surprise you a little bit. Um, this is all data coming from before uh, this weekend's tragedies, but we'll sort of set a baseline for what people's attitudes were on the issue prior to this weekend's horrible events. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about polling on executive power and how much the president should be able to do without the consent of Congress. Uh, It will come as no surprise to you the way some of those partisan wins have shifted as we have gone from Obama to Trump. Um, But we'll also talk about science, something that should not be partisan. And we'll look at the way Americans think about and trust scientists. And finally, we will discuss what counts as the Midwest. Very important for pollsters. Um, we have some high quality data, let me tell you, on what counts as the Midwest. And I got a spoiler alert for you. It's not Jacksonville. <laughs> yeah. You don't even need to be from Florida to know. Jacksonville that. is many things, not in the Midwest. But we'll we'll discuss the rest of the cities on this list and whether they deserve to be included. Yeah. That was a good that was a good find by our, our Cracker Jack team. Um so first 
Trump's approval. Um, so this is the rolling average from RCP, Real Clear Politics. And this is they're looking at the last few. There are a few different polls that came out in this first week of August. Um, and he's, you know, the same where he's been. He's got 43.1 percent approve, 53.1 percent disapprove. He's at a, you know, that technically has him at a double digit uh, you know, underwater by double digits. That's, I guess, a little bit, re, you know, a newer low from the past couple polls, or I, I guess that's, you know, taking into account polls from, uh, you know, two weeks ago. Um, but it's still the same basic place he's been. It's, you know, his approval rating's taken a little bit of a dip, but it's still basically in the band of the band of quote unquote normal. So we have some new polling that has come out since the second round of the Democratic debates. Um, as you'll recall, last week, there were two nights full of debates where the various contenders squared off. Margie went to the spin room for the very first time. We recorded our show. I believe we recorded our show like shortly after. Was it shortly after the second debate or yeah. the second debate not happened yet? I no, feel was, like we there was I still wasn't, not. I hadn't watched the second debate, but it had happened. So I, my suspicion was that you weren't going to see a ton of shifting in the polls as a result of the debate, with the exception of, I have been joking on this show for a long time that Marianne Williamson was going to get a polling bump at some point. That became like legitimate real punditry for a solid 72 hours after the debate, which surprised me a little. Uh, I've always been a little tongue-in-cheek about it, um, but there were some like, hot takes written in seriousness that like it was the moment for Marianne. Um, but it, it does turn out now with about a week of time since those debates that the field has not shifted dramatically. Um, you still have uh, former Vice President Joe Biden out in the lead, followed by that kind of second tier of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. If anything, I think the big news would be that Kamala Harris, you know, really had that spike at that first debate when she went, you know, directly head to head with Joe Biden over busing. It sort of put her in the spotlight for a little bit. But that seems to have faded somewhat. She remains in the high single digits, according to the Real Clear Politics polling average at 8.3 percent. Um, but, but that's really the only significant or significant-ish movement we've seen since the first debate. Um, everybody else is still basically in the same position that they were. Um, however, there is some polling that the Huffington Post folks have written up about uh, debate winners. Margie, what was your reaction to the post-debate polling that they did? So, all right, so a few things. Well, first, before we go into that, I, so I do, you know, I have this very technical way of figuring out what polls are, are really hot, which is to just type in poll and then news, and that gets, like, most of what is happening. But when I did that today, it said people also search for Marianne Williamson polling, which I was not doing. And so, like, very high in the algorithm is, like, you must want all the articles on Mary Williamson's poll like I'm like no I don't think so but it's um and the headlines are kind of hilarious like the first one is Mary Williamson's poll numbers the second one is Marianne Williamson's obsessively covered debate performance got her to zero percent and then the third one is Mary Williamson is a harbinger of doom for the Democrats I'm like okay well that's those are three very different 
perspectives. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, but I was like, so I somehow felt like my computer thought that you were briefly borrowing it. <laughs> like, would you would you like some more? Obsessively <laughs> searching. Where are the Marianne Williamson polls that will prove my prediction to be true? <laughs> yes. Every pundit in America who wrote one of those hot takes is like, please let her get to five percent, please. <laughs> I'm gonna like write into it, like an advice column. It's like I think Kristen has taken my computer because <laughs> everything comes back about Marianne Williamson, and I don't know if I should tell her or not. <laughs> like, how is she gonna take it? Is maybe does this really count as snooping? It's really the algorithm, anyway. So that's kind of what was just happening to me. So post-debate polling. You know, I think there are a couple ways to look at this. I mean, one is, you know, to see what happens in the vote from the same outlet. So Quinnipiac gives us that ability to see how people have, you know, moved, if at all, uh, over time, you know, from right before the debate to right after the debate. They have, like, a good table that shows and it's you know it's nothing fancy it's like a just a table that shows all the different polls that they've done every you know basically more or less every month essentially every month um since march so you could see how people have gone up and gone down you see the harris bump and then her fall back down you see warren um you know go up uh, sp- you know spike after this last debate you know Pete Buttigieg um had a real you know, upswing from March to April and then come back down a little bit. Um, so, you know, you see you see all that, you know, Sanders more or less staying kind of, you know, more or less staying the same. Um, you can see that kind of very clearly in, in just a table form. And that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to ask people what they think of the debate performance. And that tells you something. Or is it complicated by... I don't know, something else. Is it complicated by the coverage or their awareness or, you know, are they able to really assess like how, whether they feel more or less favorable toward, you know, a person from before, you know, have it's improved, worsened or stay the same. Um, and there you see, you know, it, it still tells you, I think, a similar story that Warren um, had, you know, a good debate performance or a good debate result. But there you see, you know, Warren sort of in the lead in terms of improved. Mary Williamson, I guess, you know, more say worsened than improved. Um, but and Delaney having the, the greatest net change in the in the opposite direction, you know, more worsened than improved. Uh, when I tell you that one. Delaney was quite popular in echelon slack, that should <laughs> probably tell you that he was not winning over Democratic <laughs> primary voters. Right. Like right. what's like we're like the we're like an anti-focused group. Like right. if if we like you. That's really a bad vibe for you in the Democratic yes. primary. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, and how much are these numbers really based on what you thought of these candidates beforehand, you know? Um, like Tulsi Gabbard's numbers, are, the ba- are those based on the debate performance or what you thought of Tulsi Gabbard before the debate? Same with Bill de Blasio, you know? So, so you know, it's not to dismiss these numbers. They just maybe they tell a different story. And I, I always am a little cautious about questions that ask people to make a a bunch of calculations not that they don't tell you something but that you know people start to say you know you're not really sure where they're beginning where they're ending if if it's too much for them to calculate um so this isn't quite the, you know too many calculations but it may be especially since you're asking about a variety of different a variety of different candidates and then you also have and i think this is morning console it's not in the script but they ask like who do you think 
won. And I think Quinnipiac also asked, like, who do you think won? And, you know, they try to separate out, like, okay, who are you going to vote for? Who do you think won? Who do you think has the best policies? Who do you think can beat Trump? Like, they ask different metrics and and have the same list of candidates for each as opposed to individual ratings for all of them. Just ask you to pick, for you know, from a list for all of these different dimensions. And you get slightly different but not completely different answers. But you do see – you know, Warren have some advantages over Biden on some of these and Biden having advantages over Warren on some of them. You know, it just sort of depends on how these things are being asked. Um, so it, there's different kinds. There's different kinds of measures here. And maybe the measure is not what the first poll shows about what people think about the debate. Maybe the measure is what happens two weeks from now, three weeks from now, you know down the road like what are the other ways we can measure i mean we talked about we, t- we talked about this a lot in 16 and you see it a little bit in the in all of your mary williamson reading you've been doing about what is the meaning of like being having google searches is that a metric that is useful what does that tell you yeah if, if google searches were an important metric you would be seeing marion williamson and tulsi gabbard really surging and it doesn't really appear that that happening. Now, it's it's possible that they will qualify for the next round of the debates when the, the criteria start getting more and more, um, the bar gets sort of higher and higher to clear so that there are fewer folks participating. They may well clear that bar and, and participate in future rounds, but it's not, they, they do not appear at this point to be converting people into like, I'm going to vote for Tulsi Gabbard. I'm going to vote for Marianne Williamson. The Kamala Harris bump was visible Pretty quickly after that first debate, it does not appear that there is any sort of similar bump for anybody popping, you know, very quickly after this last debate. So uh, when is the next debate? The next debate is sometime in September. In is September, that right? yes. And the criteria for the October debate are the same as the September debate. So, you know, the same polling and donor criteria that have been increased from the second to the third are now, and it's also not one, it's not donors or polling, it's donors and polling, and both criteria are more stringent than they were in the first two debates, and so that's true for this, for the third debate, it's the same for the fourth, for the fourth debate. The only other big polling story that popped this week in my feed, and, and this isn't in the script, but I just wanted to to bring it up because it, it some I saw some folks with like raised eyebrows. Was it Tom Steyer? I, I think there was a poll or two showing him starting to get into the sort of like mid single digits in one of one or two of the early states. Yeah. Now, if you are spending, if you have just come in with helicopters full of cash and are just dumping it across the states of Iowa and New Hampshire, you can build name ID and get yourself up there in the polls for sure. Um, but if those next debates also require that you have to have a certain number of donors, um, you can't just have the polls. You can't just have the donors. You have to have both. Um, be interesting to see if suddenly he gets added into the mix in, in the next set of debates as well. Yeah. So it was a non-qualifying poll where he had. Was it 6%. Morning Consult? Yes, it was Morning okay. Consult, which is a non-qualifying outlet. And I think. I'm not totally sure about this, but I think it grouped a variety of early states together, which also, which is not a qualifying way to show your top lines. I think it has to be, you know, an individual state. But I'm not I have I don't have the top lines, those sets of top lines. For, and it doesn't really matter because Morning Consult is not a qualifying outlet. But um, but also, you know, 
it, this is something that we've talked about before, which is, you know, polls that are outliers or say something that's new get a lot more coverage than those that say the same thing that the last poll showed. Well, let's go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll move into some of the other big issues of the day. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Okay, we're back. And the first polls up are on an issue that we we talk about on the show a fair amount um, that Margie in particular has done a lot of research on. Um, But of course, this is prompted by the uh, horrific events from El Paso and from Dayton, Ohio this past weekend, where you had within 24 hours, two devastating mass shootings. Um, And so you have some, some new polling here from USA Today and Ipsos trying to understand where do Americans sort of ascribe responsibility? Um, You know, typically folks mention things like the mental health system. Of course, the shooter in El Paso specifically named uh, white nationalism as his sort of, you know, animating philosophy, Um, you know, gun laws, uh, the NRA. uh, In this case, there are some folks bringing up violent video games as something they believe is a driver of, of some of this. And so in this Ipsos poll, they asked people to say, how much responsibility do you believe the following hold for mass shootings in the United States? And, you know, they then sort of grouped together. Uh, if you say something is responsible, you know, they're grouping all those answers together. Um, the top of the poll is the mental health system. Um, Democrats and Republicans alike, uh, three quarters of both of those groups say the mental health system is responsible. Um, Second to that is racism and white nationalism. And I think it's important to point out not only is that the highest percentage among Democrats, but even among Republicans, it's 57 percent say racism and white nationalism are um, responsible for uh, mass shootings in the United States. And that you could say all these things. It's not like you had to pick one or two. You could right. You you could pick as many as you wanted. And but I think it's important to note for Republicans you know, it was it was in their sort of top three of things that they pointed to as well. Because there are some of these responses where there is a big partisan divide. Republicans much more likely to say it's violent video games uh, or Democrats in Congress. Democrats much more likely to say it's President Trump or Republicans in Congress. You know, there's some of these things where there are partisan divides you might expect. But on both racism and white nationalism and the mental health system, those are among the sort of top two or three things for both Republicans and Democrats that they think is responsible for mass shooting. Yeah, I mean, I am so worn out by and exhausted by, you know, this constant shootings and the way our, you know, the way leaders just seem to kind of throw up their hands when it's so clear that there are a variety of things that can be done legislatively, policy-wise, and, you know, you have Republicans just throwing up their hands, especially when you see the news of what's been happening at the NRA. I mean, it's, you know, it shouldn't be risky to distance yourself from the NRA at this point. Um, At any rate, uh, you know, 
I am interested in these numbers on racism and white nationalism being as high as they are. I'm not surprised to see mental health. It's interesting that it says mental health system, which is different than saying like mental health challenges or something about the system that people find you know, at odds, or maybe that's just a something that they would say no matter what how that was phrased. You know, violent video games, I mean, certainly I can appreciate that parents or even non-parents, you know, find it worrying when they see people, when they see young people, you, you know, with violent video games. I can understand feeling that. But, you know, there are lo- other countries, lots of countries around the world that play the same video games um, that also have, you know, the same likelihood of having mental health challenges. You know, those are those are things that have physical components to them, but don't have the same gun problem that we do. So, you know, so it, it's interesting to me that these numbers, while partisan, of course, in predictable ways, uh, still reflect that, you know, as I've argued for a long time, that, you know, voters are farther along on this than our elected officials. They, you know, there's more consensus among voters than you would think, given what we hear from our leaders. And so these numbers, you know, kind of suggest all that to me. I mean, even 37 percent of Republicans cite, you know, gun manufacturers in the NRA. I mean, that's, you know, it's not 37 percent of Republican political leaders, you know, um, but it's 37 percent of Republican voters. So I, I find that I find that all interesting and a sign of some movement. Um, and then they also ask this question. We've seen a lot of these questions about that are kind of more abstract about how do you feel about gun laws? Should they be more strict, less strict, or are they right the way they are? This one is a five-point. Often we see a three-point, more strict, less strict, or kept the same. This is a five-point with, like, two different levels of intensity for each side, and then I kept the same. You know, not everybody asks uses the word strict. Some people say stronger. You know, there's different words here. But either way— you have 87% say more strict. I mean, that's a pretty high number. That's a lot higher than we would see if the, in a, or we have seen in a lot of previous three-point questions. Now, I don't know if that's a function of the way this question's been asked or of the timing that it was taken or of overall movement in general. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but it's very unusual. You know, back in the day when I was writing about gun polling years ago, in these three-point questions, you you did not have eighty-seven percent say more strict when it was a three-way. So I, I so this is a sign that something's happening here, and fifty-four percent of Republicans say that. Yeah. So the Ipsos polling, you know, they've asked this question. They have three different data points in their crosstab. Um, the first data point they show is from October twenty seventeen. So I believe that's shortly after the Las Vegas shooting. Um, They then have a data point that is from February 2018, which is two weeks after um, the Parkland shooting. And then you have, of course, this 2019 data point, which is coming on the heels of of both Dayton and El Paso. Um, For Democrats, there's not actually a ton of movement from data point to data point. It's very strong majorities saying gun laws should be a lot more strict than they are today. Um, among independents, also not a ton of movement, but there is some movement in the intensity where in this sort of going into the field, they find that the should be a lot more strict, the, the sort of the, the highest of that five point scale um, that has a lot more independence falling into it than the first time when this was asked. And it was it was only 32 points. It's gone up eight points on the highest point in the scale um, for Republicans. There's. It, it has not moved as much. It's 
it's a bit more consistent. And you actually saw in the wake of this past weekend, a slight, an uptick in the percentage of Republicans saying gun laws should be a lot less strict, but that is still in like, it is, it's only 12%. Um, that the vast majority of Republicans either put themselves in the make gun laws more strict, either either somewhat or a lot more, um, or think that that gun laws are about right. Um, I, I think the fact that you have, you know, it, you can make it glass half full, glass half empty, depending on which side of the issue you are, because there is that pretty sizable chunk of Republicans that say gun laws are about right. You know, if you want to say oh, well, look, there's not an appetite among Republicans for making guns more available. You can sort of lump the the gun laws or about right folks in the one side, or you can say, hey, we don't need new laws. Look, I'm lumping them down in with the let's make laws less strict. But it's, it's undeniable when you have a third of Republicans saying they think gun laws should be a lot more strict. That does not necessarily match up with where you see Republican politicians standing. And this is, it's not a new phenomenon. This is also the way Republican voters were basically feeling after the Las Vegas shooting as well. Yeah. And I think I misspoke because I thought that was the total column because it was there was no total column. But anyway, I but I'm still kind of amazed that you have a majority of Republicans saying more strict in any of these, you know, in this question at all. That's certainly not what it used to be in other kinds of outlets that asked it differently. But the other thing to remember about this question is it it's useful because obviously that's a conversation that we're having. At the same time, you know, pe- not everybody has the same understanding or awareness of what our gun laws are. So when you're asking, like, should they be more strict or less strict or kept the same or stronger or less strong, whatever, what, people may have a different understanding of what those laws are. And so you may think they're already really strict, you know, or you may think they're not strict at all. Or you may not know you're just going based on – you know, what you think and what and what is what does it mean to make it more or less strict? What's the policy that's being proposed by that question? And it's all left open ended. And it doesn't mean it's not useful. It just means it tells you something a little bit different than do you favor universal background checks? Yeah. Well, the other big poll um, that is uh, I am fascinated by that's come out is Pew has done some research on presidential power. So this was this is one of those issues where, for the most part, I find where pundit land folks stand on the issue of how much power the president should have versus Congress and the courts depends a lot on how you feel about the person in the office. Um, when President Obama was in office, he was very big on, hey, I'm going to use executive orders. I'm going to use pen and phone because the Republican Congress is stopping me from implementing my agenda. And Republicans at the time were very frustrated about this is an abuse of executive power and so on and so forth. The shoe is now very much on the other foot, as uh, the Pew, new Pew polling has found. Um, they have been asking people over the last couple of years um, at various intervals, which of the following do people agree with more? Do you think that many of the country's problems could be dealt with more effectively if U.S. presidents didn't have to worry so much about Congress or the court? Or... It would be too risky to give U.S. presidents more power to deal directly with many of the country's problems. Now, for the most part, you have strong bipartisan majority consensus that does not want to give presidents more executive power. And that is even the case today, and that is even the case among Republicans. However, among that small fraction of of both parties, 
uh, and independents that have, you know, said, no, actually, I think the country's problems could be dealt with more effectively if we didn't have these checks that sort of, you know, slow down what the president wants to do. Republicans have moved quite a bit on this issue from the end of Obama's term to now. Back in August of 2016, you had 82% of Republicans saying it's too risky to give presidents more power. Only 14% wanted to see a stronger executive. You fast forward to now, you still have a majority, but it's only 51% who say it's too risky to give U.S. presidents more power, where now you have 43% saying, yeah, we could deal with problems more effectively if um, Congress, if the president didn't have to worry about Congress and the court. So, I mean, that's, that is a three times increase in the number or proportion of Republicans who are now saying, you know what, I actually do think that, you know, it'd be, we'd be able to deal with things more effectively if the president didn't have to run, run through so many hoops. For Democrats, there has also been a shift. It's not not as as dramatic. It's not as dramatic. I know. I find that. I mean, I guess it's just they started, you know, in a similar. I mean, this was something that was not that partisan in twenty in twenty sixteen, actually, and now has become more so. Yeah, and it's and I think I am particularly fascinated by the fact that it was not as partisan back in twenty sixteen, but is more partisan now because, and this is me putting on constitutional conservative Kristen hat here for a moment. Hello, my fellow Republicans who are listening. Guess what? <laughs> it's not good to have a really powerful executive. Okay, thank you. I'm removing my hat. Um, but like, from but what if I agree with what the you know what the powerful executive's doing? Uh, is it like, okay? Surely that it's okay. Supposed to be the political party that is based around limited government and especially limited centralized power. You would think, you would think it would be Republicans who would be more consistently skeptical of a powerful executive, no matter who was in power, and that it would be for Democrats who are more comfortable with government taking a robust and active role in doing things, who are less concerned with, you know, the federal government or central power sort of addressing issues versus, you know, the Republican, oh, we need states and local governments to do things. You would think it would be the other way around. And yet... This data does not suggest that is the case. I am fascinated. There are some other things in this poll as well, um, but it is in particular a sharp rise in conservative Republicans who are now the most positive about expanding presidential powers. You know, the other thing I'm sure you saw because you are on top of all things age related, but there was a really interesting age break where there was a massive divide by party among people who are 50 and over, but among people who are under 50, the difference between D's and R's on the percent who said it would be too risky is much smaller. So younger Republicans, 64% say it would be too risky. Uh, Older Republicans, 38% said it would be too risky. And there's not a lot of difference between older and younger Democrats, 86, younger, 78% older. Um, And then there's kind of the other issue, which is what does it mean to ask these questions about sort of the structure of our government, of people? Are are these questions – I mean it's good to ask questions and see what people think, but yet these are also things that people may not necessarily have much of a sense of. Yeah. I mean this is – so I am – we're recording remotely because I am on the road. I'm doing focus groups. 
they're not focus groups that have anything to do with executive power or the Constitution. Um, but I imagine that if I walked into that focus group tonight and I asked people, like, what branch of government does Article One of the Constitution cover? Like, I and this is not to like slight the average voter, right? But they will probably all give me blank stares. Doesn't mean they're bad people. Doesn't mean they're dumb. It's just these are these are the kinds of issues that like constitutional conservative Twitter loves. Like at Senator Soshana is on the case, but like this is not. You know, the voters that I'm going to be talking to tonight, they care about health care. They care about immigration. They care about guns. They like, the, And those are things that are, of course, all intimately related to questions of constitutionality and executive power and what have you. But that like that kind of debate can sometimes feel one or two steps removed from what am I paying at the pump? What am I paying at in my you know insurance premium? Does my child feel safe at school like? These are just all like much more esoteric debates. Right. But that doesn't Although, mean they're not important. <laughs> they seem not quite so removed these days. But yes, in theory, they are a few steps removed from daily life. You're right. Um, okay. So we'll take a break and then we'll come back and talk about science. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, so we're back, and there's something else that Pew put out that I thought was pretty interesting in the way they looked at trust in different institutions and figures and industries, um, like to what extent people feel they have a great deal or a fair amount of confidence that a variety of groups are going to act in the best interest of the public, and you know, you haven't seen that much variation or fluctuation in any of the different people and figures that they that Pew's been testing. They have the military, scientists, medical scientists, sort of a subcategory, business leaders, news media, religious leaders, elected officials. Some variation kind of with the bottom tier, which is news media, religious leaders, business le- maybe not business leaders, and elected officials. There's a little bit of fluctuation between 16 and 19. But, you know, strong, clear support, particularly for scientists, that people think that these are groups that are going to have, you know, are going to act in the best interests of the public. There are partisan differences, however, when you start asking a little bit more detail beneath the surface. And that's where the partisan divide on science really becomes quite clear. What did you think yeah. when you saw this? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I, there is a partisan divide, but I, I guess I didn't think it was 
that dramatic, right? Like, I think that oftentimes Republicans are characterized as like, oh, science is all bad. Like, I, there are so many people in my neighborhood who have these, you know, the like, love is love, science is real. Like, you know, those signs up in their front yard. And I'm like, yeah, science is real. And like, lots of Republicans think so, too. I want to love is love, science is real. Uh, uh, an efficient tax system involves low rates that have a broad base and efficient collection of revenue in order to fund the government. Like, that's the shirt I want. Like, I'm going to make that shirt. Um, you know, good it, good so, luck with that. Um, good luck with be, finding a market, finding a free market for that shirt. I guess oh, I I'm going to sell it. I'm going to sell it on Twitter. Listeners, what, keep, keep an eye on my Twitter feed. That shirt is going to be available coming to, coming to an internet near you. But so, you know, they do ask people about scientists sort of personally and the role they should or shouldn't play in policy or basically do you view scientists as being like fundamentally human and potentially prone to error or do you think that they're like they're better than the average person at, at certain things and so these questions are interesting because actually they they wind up splitting republicans fairly evenly well there's one question where they they split it's like a two-to-one margin but on the question of should scientists take an active role in policy debates or should they just focus on establishing sound scientific facts? Republicans are fairly split, but lean slightly 56% saying they'd rather them just sort of focus on establishing facts, leave the policy debate to the people who do policy. Democrats are very much in favor of scientists being actively involved in policy debates. Um, but it's not that Republicans oppose it overwhelmingly. I mean, and, and frankly, the question is a little odd because you can ag agree with both of these. I mean, I assume it's framed as which one, even if you agree with both, which one do you agree with more? But you can say, I believe scientists should focus on establishing sound scientific facts because I think those facts should be taken into consideration by policymakers when having debates. So I, I would, I, I don't know that I look at these questions and I think, oh my gosh, there are huge partisan divides over how we think about scientists. The biggest divide, I suppose, is on the question of do you think scientific experts are usually better at making science policy decisions? But it's also, I mean, how, how, what are we defining science policy decisions as? Is it like funding for scientific research? Is it, you know, are, are we defining a science policy decision as what should our healthcare system be? I mean, clearly that's related to health science. But there's also a lot of, there's public finance. There's like lots of stuff involved in that. Um, right. It's not clear what, I mean, what would happen if we filled this in with a specific topic? Um, you know, if we're talking about climate change or if we're talking about, for example, doing, you know, research into gun violence or gun accidents, which, you know, has, there hasn't been federal funding. Or are we talking about things related to like Alzheimer's research, which you know, I'm, I'm assuming is less, less partisan in the results. It, you're right. So people are answering this more in the abstract, and we don't know what kind of science or what topic area they're thinking about. Um, but I think we would, so depending on the topic, we would see this partisan divide grow or shrink. And I, there's some research that I had to, an opportunity to do, like a bipartisan project around uh, federal funding for science and what role voters think science should play in the policymaking process. And you are absolutely right, Margie, that, that, you know, on things like, you know, should we have scientists involved in doing research to come up with things to help with national defense? Like Republicans are all about that. They are there for that. 
and even on things around health, um, health policy, you know, all, things like Alzheimer's research, like you mentioned, you can find huge majorities of Republicans who are very upbeat about that and think we should be doing it. But when you get into the more, you know, something like climate, for instance, you find a drop off. It's not that no Republicans think that, that you should, you know, have scientists involved in policymaking around climate, but it's, you, you, you see those drops around things that are a little more hot button versus, you know, defense or disease cures. Yep. Okay. Let's move on to something that is based on science, maybe, or at least should be agreed upon, which is what is in the Midwest. <laughs> yes. I don't know what this poll is or where it came from or or anything really about it. A data journalist at City Lab. Okay. All right. So there was a poll. I don't know who submitted answers to it, um, but it said, are these cities Midwestern? And I think you can fill it out. I just filled it out to see what would happen. You could fill it out yourself where you would put in your zip code and then it would ask, well, is that zip code in the Midwest? And somehow people in Jacksonville, I guess, submitted their zip code and said, yes, they're in the Midwest because 18% of people who responded to this poll said that that city is in the Midwest. Very strange. That Very seems strange. wrong. And honestly, but the other cities, some of the other cities on this list are wrong too. So there's a few cities on this list. This isn't like every city. This is just a variety of cities that of note. Louisville, 51% of folks thought, you know, said that Louisville's in the Midwest. 41% said the same of Buffalo. 36% said that of Pittsburgh. 29% of, said that Oklahoma City. 18% Jacksonville. 9% Denver. I mean, I don't think these are right. These are not right. And <laughs> this is say, where these are right. This is where I will say that I think the realignment we have seen in college football conferences over the last decade has been a major contributor mm. to some of this confusion. Because uh. you used to have the Southeastern Conference right. that had the Southeast delineated it was in the sec east you had kentucky you had two schools in tennessee you had south carolina you had georgia you had florida then you had in the sec west you had alabama you had mississippi you had lsu you had arkansas and like those were the boundaries and then the sec absorbs texas a&m okay fine, maybe you can argue Texas is Southeast, kind of. And then Missouri? I mean, Missouri, that's Midwest. It's Midwest. It's Midwest. I'm sorry. It's Midwest. And so that got all scrambled. You used to have, like, the Big Ten and the Big 12, and you could say, like, Midwest is you know, is Midwest places with Big Ten schools. And that wasn't perfect because, I, you know, then are you counting, like, is Penn State? That's not the Midwest. You know, so it, it wasn't perfect. But I think now you've kind of had this total scrambling. And so I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'll just say I think these cities do not strike me as the Midwest. I think a judge of whether it is the Midwest, for me, is are people – really, really nice. Are people really, really just absolutely 
lovely and friendly. How likely is your Uber driver to talk to you? <laughs> like that to me is a way of thinking about the Midwest. So I would like to know, okay, <laughs> I that, think that's, I'd I love think, listeners to tell me if that is effective criteria. I, well, I think you would find a lot of people in most places, not all, of course, who would say, Hey, that's my, that's my town. My town is, must also be in the Midwest, no matter where you are. I mean, People are, are friendly in lots no, of No, but the parts. Midwest is it's different. It's a different kind of nice. It's like, it's magical. It's a magical kind of niceness. Now, the South, the South has its own type of niceness, but Southern nice is different from Midwestern nice. And I, I got to think of the ways, this is going to be something I will spend too much mental energy on, like quantifying the difference between Midwestern nice and Southern nice. But they are different things. Yes. Well, what about New Jersey and New York? Nice. <laughs> Would you Is that, that a thing? No, it's just a thing I made up. <laughs> I just made up that phrase. I think like glass is shattering. <laughs> like there, there are people like dropping their black and whites. Like, what did you say? That's crazy. I wonder if they could break out this poll, quote unquote poll, based on who said you know, like, what's the party identification of how, what, whether people thought these various cities are in the Midwest or not? Um, because being able to target the Midwest is obviously going to be very important for 2020. And so, you know, and it's also like people like to talk about like, oh, you don't understand this audience or that audience. Obviously, that's like a whole Twitter meme does looking at which party understands and can identify the Midwest, does that really mean anything? And remember, we did talk about, I mean, there's other things like this, too. Remember we talked about when we had Jeff Pollock on, although I think we had to cut it because they had bad audio, but, um, like, what's upstate New York? There was, like, a poll of what is considered upstate New York and, you know, is upstate New York, like, Brooklyn, or is upstate New York, you know, Buffalo? Like, it depends on where exactly <laughs> in New York you are. Well, I'm not qualified to comment on what counts as upstate New York, but I'm definitely going to try. Twitter followers, I'm going to turn to you to help us come up with a, a, a rubric, the criteria that separate out Southern nice from Midwestern nice, because they're different. But I, I, I really want to think through what the, what the specific identifiers are of the difference. Yeah. I think, I think lots of people are nice. I love seeing how nice everybody is in focus groups. Wherever I go, people are very, very nice. Um, so what we learned this week, I think it's, you know, it's obviously challenging to ask anybody to make calculations, whether you're talking about what is in the Midwest, what is the role of the president and presidential powers, who won the debate. These are all tough questions. And some announcements. We are taking, is it the next two weeks off? So we will be back the last week in August. So we are taking a little break as one does in August. Um, but the trend line's not taking a break. What is on the trend line this week? Uh, we are still putting our lineup together, but I believe I am going to have friend of the show, Mary Catherine Ham, join me. I am extremely excited about this. We're going to try not to spend the whole time talking about Hobbs and Shaw, um, the Fast and Furious movie that came out last weekend, uh, but yeah, we so might. It might just be 53 minutes of us talking about that. So 
Somebody came you know, to my house last weekend, like at just having walked out of the movie theater and just talked about that movie for like 45 minutes. <laughs> that was all they wanted to talk about. <laughs> and it was his birthday, so we let him. But we were all like, Are you, oh, you're still, okay, yes, let's. And then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> so I hear you. I guess, I, I guess I'll need to tune in. Now I'm, I'm almost an expert. Well, you can find us and our show at, at the Pulsters, individually at Margie O'Meara and at Kay Soltis Anderson, or at www.thepolsters.com. Don't forget, folks, if you have not written a review of our show, we used to give out homework. We used to give yeah. out these micro assignments, and yeah. we haven't yet uh, lately. I think when we come back after our break, we're going to be back in the homework assigning business yeah. because reviews are so important, and we've started to get a few more of them trickling in. Yep as more of you tune in because of the election. So get excited. We're going to start assigning more homework, but please right. write back to those school. reviews. It's going to be ready for back to school. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.